Section 18 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. HISTORY OF ENGLAND FROM THE INVASION OF JULIUS CAESAR TO THE REVOLUTION OF 1688 BY DAVID HUME, VOLUME 1 F, SECTION 18, CHAPTER 66, PART 3 It was by the events of the campaign, not the conferences among the negotiators, that the Articles of Peace were to be determined. The Spanish towns, ill-fortified and worse defended, made but a feeble resistance to Louis who by laying up magazines during the winter was able to take the field early in the spring before the forage could be found in the open country in the month of april he laid siege to kund and took it by storm in four days having sent the duke of orleans to besiege bouquaine a small but important fortress he posted himself so advantageously with his main army as to render the confederates from relieving it or fighting without disadvantage the prince of orange in spite of the difficulties of the season and the want of provisions came in sight of the french army but his industry served to no other purpose than to render him spectator of the surrender of bouquaine both armies stood in awe of each other and were unwilling to hazard an action which might be attended with the most important consequences lewis though he wanted not personal courage was little enterprising in the field and being resolved this campaign to rest contented with the advantages which he had so early obtained he thought proper to entrust his army to mariscal schomberg and retired himself to versailles after his departure the prince of orange laid siege to maestrich but meeting with an obstinate resistance he was obliged on the approach of schomberg who in the meantime had taken air to raise the siege he was incapable of yielding to adversity or bending under misfortunes but he began to foresee that by the negligence and errors of his allies the war in flanders must necessarily have a very unfortunate issue on the upper rhine philipsburg was taken by the imperialist in pomerania the swedes were so unsuccessful against the danes and brandenburgers that they seemed to be losing apace all those possessions which with so much valour and good fortune they had acquired in germany about the beginning of winter the congress of nemeguen was pretty full and the plenipotentiaries of the emperor and spain two powers strictly conjoined by blood and alliance at last appeared the dutch had threatened if they absented themselves any longer to proceed to a separate treaty with france in the conferences and negotiations the dispositions of the parties became every day more apparent the hollanders loaded with debts and harassed with taxes were desirous of putting an end to a war in which besides the disadvantages attending all leagues the weakness of the spaniards the divisions and delays of the germans prognosticated nothing but disgrace and misfortune their commerce languished and what gave them still greater anxiety the commerce of england by reason of her neutrality flourished extremely 
and they were apprehensive lest advantages once lost would never thoroughly be regained they had themselves no further motive for continuing the war than to secure the frontier to flanders but gratitude to their allies still engaged them to try whether another campaign might procure a peace which would give general satisfaction the prince of orange urged by motives of honor of ambition and of animosity against france endeavored to keep them steady to this resolution the spaniards not to mention the other incurable weaknesses into which their monarchy was fallen were distracted with domestic dissensions between the parties of the queen regent and don john natural brother to their young sovereign though unable of themselves to defend flanders they were resolute not to conclude a peace which would leave it exposed to every assault or inroad and while they made the most magnificent promises to the states their real trust was in the protection of england they saw that if that small but important territory were once subdued by france the hollanders exposed to so terrible a power would fall into dependence and would endeavor by submissions to ward off that destruction to which a war in the heart of their state must necessarily expose them they believed that lewis sensible how much greater advantages he might reap from the alliance than from the subjection of the republic which must scatter its people and depress its commerce would be satisfied with very moderate conditions and would turn his enterprises against his other neighbors they thought it impossible but the people and parliament of england foreseeing these obvious consequences must at last force the king to take part in the affairs of the continent in which their interests were so deeply concerned and they trusted that even the king himself on the approach of so great a danger must open his eyes and sacrifice his prejudices in favor of france to the safety of his own dominions but charles here found himself entangled in such opposite motives and engagements as he had not resolution enough to break or patience to unravel on the one hand he always regarded his alliance with france as a sure resource in case of any commotions among his own subjects and whatever schemes he might still retain for enlarging his authority or altering the established religion it was from that quarter alone he could expect assistance he had actually in secret sold his neutrality to france and he received remittances of a million of livres a year which was afterwards increased to two millions a considerable supply in the present embarrassed state of his revenue and he dreaded lest the parliament should treat him as they had formerly done his father and after they had engaged him in a war on the continent should take advantage of his necessities and make him purchase supplies by sacrificing his prerogative and abandoning his ministers on the other hand the cries of his people and parliament seconded by danby arlington and most of his ministers incited him to take part with the allies and to correct the unequal balance of power in europe he might apprehend danger from opposing such earnest desires he might hope for large supplies if he concurred with them and however inglorious and indolent his disposition the renown of acting as arbiter of europe would probably at intervals rouse him from his lethargy 
and move him to support the high character with which he stood invested it is worthy of observation that during this period the king was by every one abroad and at home by france and by the allies allowed to be the undisputed arbiter of europe and no terms of peace which he would have prescribed could have been refused by either party though france afterwards found means to resist the same alliance joined with england yet was she then obliged to make such violent efforts as quite exhausted her and it was the utmost necessity which pushed her to find resources far surpassing her own expectations charles was sensible that so long as the war continued abroad he should never enjoy ease at home from the impatience and importunity of his subjects yet could he not resolve to impose a peace by openly joining himself with either party terms advantageous to the allies must lose him the friendship of france the contrary would enrage his parliament between these views he perpetually fluctuated and his conduct it is observable that a careless remiss disposition agitated by opposite motives is capable of as great inconsistencies as are incident even to the greatest imbecility and folly the parliament was assembled and the king made them a plausible speech in which he warned them against all differences among themselves expressed a resolution to do his part for bringing their consultations to a happy issue and offered his consent to any laws for further security of their religion liberty and property he then told them of the decayed condition of the navy and asked money for repairing it he informed them that part of his revenue the additional excise was soon to expire and he added these words you may at any time see the yearly established expense of the government by which it will appear that the constant and unavoidable charge being paid there will remain no overplus towards answering those contingencies which may happen in all kingdoms and which have been a considerable burden on me this last year before the parliament entered upon business they were stopped by a doubt concerning the legality of their meeting it had been enacted by an old law of edward the third that parliament should be held once every year or oftener if need be the last prorogation had been longer than a year and being supposed on that account illegal it was pretended to be equivalent to a dissolution the consequence seems by no means just and besides a later act that which repealed the triennial law had determined that it was necessary to hold parliaments only once in three years such weight however was put on this cavil that buckingham shaftesbury salisbury and wharton insisted strenuously in the house of peers on the invalidity of the parliament and the nullity of all its future acts for such dangerous positions they were sent to the tower there to remain during the pleasure of his majesty and the house buckingham salisbury and wharton made submissions and were soon after released but shaftesbury more obstinate in his temper and desirous of distinguishing himself by his adherence to liberty sought the remedy of law and being rejected by the judges he was at last after a twelve months imprisonment obliged to make the same submissions upon which he was also released 
the commons at first seemed to proceed with temper they granted the sum of five hundred and eighty-six thousand pounds for building thirty ships though they strictly appropriated the money to that service estimates were given in of the expense but it was afterwards found that they fell short near one hundred thousand pounds they also voted agreeably to the king's request the continuance of the additional excise for three years this excise had been granted for nine years in sixteen sixty eight everything seemed to promise a peaceable and an easy session but the parliament was roused from this tranquillity by the news received from abroad the french king had taken the field in the middle of february and laid siege to valun which he carried in a few days by storm he next invested both cambray and st omers the prince of orange alarmed with his progress hastily assembled an army and marched to the relief of st omers he was encountered by the french under the duke of orleans and mariscal luxembourg the prince possessed great talents for war courage activity vigilance patience but still he was inferior in genius to those consummate generals opposed to him by lewis and though he always found means to repair his losses and to make head in a little time against the victors he was during his whole life unsuccessful by a masterly movement of luxembourg he was here defeated and obliged to retreat to ypres cambry and st omers were soon after surrendered to lewis this success derived from such great power and such wise conduct infused a just terror into the english parliament they addressed the king representing the danger to which the kingdom was exposed from the greatness of france and praying that his majesty by such alliances as he should think fit would both secure his own dominions and the spanish netherlands and thereby quiet the fears of his people the king desirous of eluding this application which he considered as a kind of attack on his measures replied in general terms that he would use all means for the preservation of flanders consistent with the peace and safety of his kingdoms this answer was an evasion or rather a denial the commons therefore thought proper to be more explicit they entreated him not to defer the entering into such alliances as might attain that great end and in case war with the french king should be the result of his measures they promised to grant him all the aids and supplies which would enable him to support the honor and interest of the nation the king was also more explicit in his reply he told them that the only way to prevent danger was to put him in a condition to make preparations for their security this message was understood to be a demand of money the parliament accordingly empowered the king to borrow on the additional excise two hundred thousand pounds at seven per cent a very small sum indeed but which they deemed sufficient with the ordinary revenue to equip a good squadron and thereby put the nation in security till further resolutions should be taken but this concession fell far short of the king's expectations he therefore informed them that unless they granted him the sum of six hundred thousand pounds upon new funds it would not be possible for him without exposing the nation to manifest danger 
to speak or act those things which would answer the end of their several addresses the house took this message into consideration but before they came to any resolution the king sent for them to whitehall where he told them upon the word of a king that they should not repent any trust which they would repose in him for the safety of his kingdom that he would not for any consideration break credit with them or employ their money to other uses than those for which they intended it but that he would not hazard either his own safety or theirs by taking any vigorous measures or forming new alliances till he were in a better condition both to defend his subjects and offend his enemies this speech brought affairs to a short issue the king required them to trust him with a large sum he pawned his royal word for their security they must either run the risk of losing their money or fail of those alliances which they had projected and at the same time declare to all the world the highest distrust of their sovereign but there were many reasons which determined the house of commons to put no trust in the king they considered that the pretence of danger was obviously groundless while the french were opposed by such powerful alliances on the continent while the king was master of a good fleet at sea and while all his subjects were so heartily united in opposition to foreign enemies that the only justifiable reason therefore of charles's backwardness was not the apprehension of danger from abroad but a diffidence which he might perhaps have entertained of his parliament lest after engaging him in foreign alliances for carrying on war they should take advantage of his necessities and extort from him concessions dangerous to his royal dignity that this parliament by their past conduct had given no foundation for such suspicions and were so far from pursuing any sinister ends that they had granted supplies for the first dutch war for maintaining the triple league though concluded without their advice even for carrying on the second dutch war which was entered into contrary to their opinion and contrary to the manifest interest of the nation that on the other hand the king had by former measures excited very reasonable jealousies in his people and did with a bad grace require at present their trust and confidence that he had not scrupled to demand supplies for maintaining the triple league at the very moment he was concerting measures for breaking it and had accordingly employed to that purpose the supplies which he had obtained by those delusive pretenses that his union with france during the war against holland must have been founded on projects the most dangerous to his people and as the same union was still secretly maintained it might justly be feared that the same projects were not yet entirely abandoned that he could not seriously intend to prosecute vigorous measures against france since he had so long remained entirely unconcerned during such obvious dangers and till prompted by his parliament whose proper business it was not to take the lead in those parts of administration had suspended all his activity that if he really meant to enter into a cordial union with his people he would have taken the first step and have endeavoured by putting trust in them to restore that confidence which he himself by his rash conduct had first violated that it was in vain to ask so small a sum as six hundred thousand pounds 
in order to secure him against the future attempts of the parliament since that sum must soon be exhausted by a war with france and he must again fall into that dependence which was become in some degree essential to the constitution that if he would form the necessary alliances that sum or a greater would be instantly voted nor could there be any reason to dread that the parliament would immediately desert measures in which they were engaged by their honor their inclination and the public interest that the real ground therefore of the king's refusal was neither apprehension of danger from foreign enemies nor jealousy of parliamentary encroachments but a desire of obtaining the money which he intended notwithstanding his royal word to employ to other purposes and that by using such dishonorable means to so ignoble an end he rendered himself still more unworthy the confidence of his people end of section eighteen chapter sixty six part three recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com